Welcome to Disrupted Asia, navigating the global order of tomorrow, a podcast series by FES in Asia, where Asia's and Europe's leading experts tackle some of the most pressing questions around the challenging geopolitical environment and how this is shaping the global order of tomorrow. In this episode, we take stock of the pandemic's systemic impact and discuss what changes the crisis has triggered across the region, including the implications of the new geopolitics of Asia. To discuss these issues, we have with us Mark Saxer, the head of the FES Asia Department in Berlin. Previously, he led the FES offices in India and Thailand. He's also the author of the book Transformative Realism, a practical handbook for progressive and transformative political change. Mark is a fervent Asia enthusiast and expert on societal transformations. Welcome to our podcast, Disrupted Asia. We are very happy to have with us Mark Saxer from our Berlin office. Welcome to our podcast, Mark. Thank you for having me. A year ago, you wrote a short opinion piece for FES Asia in which you outlined the immense shockwaves that the coronavirus crisis sent through the political, economic, and social systems of countries all around the world, but specifically in the Asia-Pacific region. You advocated for the using of the upheaval of the crisis as a window to the future, as an opportunity to accelerate the progressive transformations necessary to tackle long-standing social, economic, and environmental issues. Where do we stand now, a year and a half into the pandemic? What are the systematic implications of the COVID crisis in your view? Well, a year ago, I had argued that uh, not so much the pandemic itself, but the economic and political crisis that it had provoked um, accelerates uh, a couple of underlying trends that had been at work for a while. Um, First, um, a paradigm shift in the way that the global economy is organized from efficiency or just in time to resilience or just in case. Um, Second, um, the geoeconomic reorganization of the world economy, meaning the trends of decoupling, diversification, and regionalization. And third, there is an intensification of geopolitical rivalries, including arms races, diplomatic tussles, violent clashes, and the emergence of new alliances. A year and a half later, there is now plenty of evidence that indeed all these trends are accelerating. There are studies that the reshoring and nearshoring of production facilities is indeed accelerating. There is, and I think that's important to know, no exodus from China as the propagators of decoupling are advocating for, but you do see a diversification across Eurasia. This trend is both driven by market rationales, um, such as Uh, the vulnerability of supply chains that we've seen during the pandemic, uh, but also the rising labor costs, for instance, in China, as well as political considerations such as worries over corruption, poor governments, uh, industrial espionage, and political meddling uh, with corporate affairs. But there are also overarching geostrategic considerations at work, Uh, In Asia, we have witnessed the conclusion of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP, which forms the largest trade zone in the world. 
and Europe uh, Indo-Pacific strategies have been adopted that promote the diversification of economic as well as political relationships in Asia. At the same time, the conclusion of free trade agreements with Japan, Singapore, and Vietnam, as well as connectivity partnerships with Japan and ASEAN, indicates that the EU this time around is willing to put money where its mouth is. At the same time, export controls, curtails on investment, technology transfers, and such, um, as well as trade wars, means that the trend to regionalization continues a trend that could lead to the emergence of trading blocks with high entrance barriers for outsiders. So in sum, you could say that uh, indeed the pandemic um, has accelerated some of these trends that have been at work for at least a decade now, and uh, we will have to discuss what that actually means. And let's do exactly that. To what extent have progressive actors been successful in using this crisis as an opportunity for transformative change in order to help build socially just societies and a people-centered economy? What are the alliances they need to build? What are the challenges they encounter? Here, I think the the record is is mixed at best. Um, We do see in Europe, for instance, um, the widespread adoption of new economic thinking um, with some sort of neo-Keynesianism and modern monetary theory, as well as Masukato-inspired missions that have been adopted within the huge stimulus uh, and recovery packages. Um, I am still hesitant to call this a paradigm shift because the main battle over the cost of the crisis has not even started yet. Um, only if we can avoid another round of austerity meaning that the lower third of the population has to pick up the check for the crisis, um, as it happened after the 2008 crisis, only then the end of the neoliberal age is complete. Um, Progressives, unfortunately, are largely ignorant to this greatest battle in uh, half a century and waste their energy in culture wars. Uh, In Asia, uh, the picture is not much better. In many countries, the crisis has given rise to surveillance and security measures that are likely to stay when the pandemic is long over. Simply, uh, if you look at what happened after 9-11, it's a very similar trend. These uh, regulations tend to uh, stay in place. We see that in almost every country in the region, democracy and human rights have been on the defense uh, or collapsed altogether, uh, like recently in Myanmar. In this constellation, unfortunately, I do not see any progressive attempts uh, to build broad societal alliances for transformation. But without these broad alliances, from the edges of the political field, from a marginalized position, progressives will just not make much of a difference. So mixed record at best. Let's also explore a little bit about the reigning paradigm that's emerging, a development that already started prior to the coronavirus crisis, but was certainly accelerated by it, are the intensifying geopolitical rivalries that bookends the type of uh, issues that you have just highlighted, the superpower competition between China and the United States and its repercussions will decisively shape the future regional and global order, The Asia-Pacific region, countries large and small, will likely be caught for decades in this context, 
and political dominance, military power, economic influence? What are the driving forces and key trends that you see characterizing this new geopolitics of Asia? Well, let me uh, first say that geopolitics is obviously not new in Asia or Eurasia, if you count the entire landmass from Europe all the way down to uh, Indonesia. Um, it's always been a theater of uh, geopolitical competition. Think about the Anglo-Russian Great Game in the 20th century, as well as the Cold War proxy wars in Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and so on. I think in the beginning of the 21st century, we uh, we'll see uh, the intensifying rivalry between the U.S. and China over hegemony. Um, there are some classical components of this rivalry. Um, look at the military buildup in the South China Sea and all these diplomatic tit-for-tats uh, like the expulsion of journalists and researchers and students, um, as well as the foundation of political and potentially military alliances like the Quad. Uh, which uh, basically brings together the U.S. with Japan, Australia, and India. There's also an ideological component to it with the systemic rivalry between liberal democracies and market economies on the one hand and um, uh, development dictatorships on, on the other. In comparison to the Cold War, I think this ideological component is not the decisive factor, but it is there. The main focus this time around of the competition is the economic field with the tech war at the very heart. If you really want to know what is at stake, have a closer look at the geopolitics of semiconductors. Uh, then you will understand why, for instance, Taiwan is at the center of attention, both in Washington and Beijing. The main difference to the Cold War is the economic interdependence between the main competitors. While the U.S. and the Soviet Union had their own economic spheres, the economies of uh, the U.S. and China are deeply intertwined. That is not a coincidence, but the result of deliberate policies dating back all the way to the 1970s. This is why geopolitical calls for decoupling have so far had only minor impact, despite some efforts uh, on both sides to minimize their vulnerabilities to each other. It will be interesting and decisive to watch um, how this is going to change or not, um, because this is going to change uh, and shape the relationship between the two competitors. And we will have to see how uh, the Biden uh, administration uh, will position itself um, on this matter. With a view to this trend that you have just highlighted and the differences between the past and how it's playing in this instance. Let's delve a little bit deeper on one a particular key question. Many believe that the future international order will be decided in the Asia-Pacific. Would you agree? Well, absolutely agree. Uh, we have witnessed that China has long begun to build the foundations of an alternative regional and possibly world order with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and the New Development Bank, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the Belt and Road Initiative, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, and so on. Um, at the same time, Beijing is very active in the established multilateral institutions, claiming a leading role in the fight against climate change, peacekeeping, and the fight against the corona pandemic. 
My reading is that neither in Washington nor Beijing, the final decision to incorporate China in the world order, uh, the established world order or not, um, has been taken. But I think that both sides are hedging their options and testing alternative routes. Another difference here is that the new geopolitical dynamic is not entirely bipolar like the Cold War, with Russia, India, Iran, and Turkey playing autonomous roles, and Japan, Australia, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, and Israel playing also important roles in the background. Um, it will be interesting uh, to watch if the European Union will be able to deliver on its promises to get more involved, um, as well as if ASEAN can stay united enough uh, to defend its centrality. Between these very important countries, which will play a pivotal role, there are also many smaller landlocked, uh, least developed countries which come into this mixed bag. And through your long association with Asia, you have also always advocated for the agency of these groups. Small landlocked and least developed countries in the region are particularly affected by these fundamental shifts and find themselves caught in this great power rivalries, especially for many countries in the immediate neighborhood. How are these new geopolitics and geoeconomics impacting their national development path? How can they best navigate the complex geopolitical environment around? Well, if you are a landlocked country like uh, Mongolia, Nepal, Afghanistan, or Laos, you are particularly vulnerable to geopolitical pressures from your neighbors. But the trends we just talked about um, should be worrisome for all as Asian countries uh, who may find themselves uh, cut out of global supply chains, see their market access conditioned on political allegiance and losing out in the race for investment. In other words, the opportunity structures for development are changing fast and the validity of your development is going to be tested. Those who sit and wait that investment, infrastructures, and jobs uh, will come may find out that they will never come. In this very moment, when the infrastructure for the world economy of the 21st century is put into place, countries that fail to become a node in this new grid may find themselves in a peripheral position for decades to come. So everything from well-being, wealth, and war is at stake. As a way of wrapping up and fully aware that no one has a crystal ball to see what the future is going to hold, what do you think the Asia-Pacific region will look like in, say, 15 to 20 years from now? What are the geopolitical certainties and uncertainties, drivers and disruptors of change we should prepare ourselves for? Well, that's, of course, the trillion dollar question here. So let me put two disclaimers in place first. Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm really skeptical of mainstream geopolitical analysis because they tend to operate with linear trajectories, meaning they take a current trend and just project it into the future. Um, while this may or may not be valid, for instance, for population growth trajectories, um, for instance, when we look at growth rates, uh, they are much more vulnerable to uh, crisis. And if we should have learned anything from the past decade, 
Uh, it is a certainty that crisis and black swan events um, like the financial crisis, the euro crisis, the refugee crisis, the corona crisis will happen. We just don't know what events it will be. So uh, all of these crises, to a higher or lesser degree, tend to be turning points. So linear trajectories don't make sense. Second, uh, especially the realist school of thought uh, tend to treat countries like monoliths, assuming they have a fixed national interest that will inform the rational behavior uh, on uh, the world stage. Uh, again, a quick recap of the last decade shows that this is not the case. Uh, think of the erratic uh, about faces of uh, Trump and Duterte, the shift in power in Sri Lanka and Malaysia, the internally contested politics of Thailand and Afghanistan. If you want to speculate about the future, uh, for instance, in India, Indonesia and Taiwan, you have to look into these internal developments. That being said, uh, I think it is safe to assume that the rise of China will continue. So will the antagonism between Washington and Beijing. And this relationship will form the framework within which the politics of the region will unfold. The global center of economic and also political gravity will continue to shift eastward into a region which has little or no collective security institutions. And as we have said, now that we see the intensification of hegemonic conflicts. Um, there is a saying that uh, history does not repeat itself, uh, but it is very difficult to overlook the parallels to the late 19th and early 20th century when Europeans sleepwalked into two world wars. If Asia does not want to repeat uh, the mistakes Europe made, I think major efforts need to be taken to build better political frameworks that allow to mitigate hegemonic rivalries and resolve dangerous conflicts in a peaceful manner. Maybe the European experience of mitigating the Cold War could be helpful there. Mark, you have covered a breadth and depth of uh, what we are looking at in the region, drawing from history as well as uh, from your long experience and association in the region while also cautioning us uh, to remain skeptical of mainstream geopolitical analysis that uh, foresees future trends in a linear fashion. Uh, we certainly hope that uh, this provides an extra dimension of prism through which uh, we may see uh, the region, how, how, how events play out, but also at the same time, glean learnings from. Uh, this has been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. This was Mark Saxer, the head of the Asia Department at FES Berlin. This podcast was brought to you by FES in Asia. Interview by Dim Kim Silo. Research by Alexander Lipka. Directed by Mirkor Gunter and produced by MediaWalk. Make sure to subscribe, tell your friends about it, and don't forget to visit our website, asia.fes.de, for regular updates on freedom justice and solidarity in Asia. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.